we once again come to another story in the life of uh, Elijah, uh, that great prophet of the Old Covenant, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Uh, last time we spoke on these passages, we actually covered the first three verses, but that's important context for us to consider verses 4 through 18. So 1 Kings chapter 19, reading verses 1 through 18, reading from the English Standard Version translation. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel of the Lord touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they have thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. 
And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mohalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would ask for your Holy Spirit, that same Spirit who inspired the prophets and caused the scriptures to be written down, that your Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand the significance and meaning of this passage and how it applies to us today as those who follow the Lord Jesus. We pray that we might, uh, through the patience and encouragement of the scriptures, have hope. And so we play, pray, bless, Lord, uh, the reading of this word that we have read and bless the opening up of this word in terms of the message that we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. So you notice that I've, in, that I've titled this sermon, Your Toil is Not in Vain. And of course, you will connect that to an important passage in, in the New Testament. But I also want to say that we need to reflect upon the guiding theme that has sort of a been the context into which we have placed each of these narrative stories about Elijah. Uh, the greater context, as, a, as it applies to us today, has to do with, with the culture that we live in, what has happened to Western civilization, in terms of the resurgence and dominance of paganism. Uh, that's true throughout our country. It's true throughout Western Europe. And in many parts of what we call Christianity, uh, paganism, again and again, is in fact the underlying worldview that is shaping the things that take place. Nevertheless, uh, the call to us as believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. This is, this is the basic point of view that we bring to Elijah's story, that his stories are about God, his stories are about God's people, and his story is about the paganism of idolatry raised up against the true faith of the true God in Old Testament history. But there are so many parallels to what we are facing today. The second thing I want to begin with is for us to note how Scripture works together. Scripture works together with Scripture. And so I want you to reflect back upon the messages, the five messages in January, which were taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, that, that initial prayer that the Apostle Paul prays on behalf of the Colossian church, uh, that five-part prayer that we took apart and looked at from the standpoint of a five-part summary of the Christian life. And to remember that that five-part summary, that prayer, actually speaks to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. In the first place, uh, we looked at the Apostle Paul's very first petition, and we said, you know, this speaks to the fact that we as Christians have a manual for the Christian life. It is, we have the authoritative word of God. We have the Bible, and it's out of that Bible that we are to find our guidance and direction and growth as Christians. And secondly, we saw in his second petition that there's a mandate for the Christian life, that we have a calling to live a Christ-centered life, a life that is worthy of the name of Christ, and that our aim in this mandate is to please the Lord in every respect. Thirdly, uh, Paul's prayer pointed to a mission that each of us has within the Christian life, 
a, a mission, a, a actual functional objective. And that is good works. That is to do all the good that we can possibly do each and every day that we live. We are oriented toward doing good works, doing the good that we can do. And then fourthly, in Paul's prayer, there is a model for the Christian life, a model in which perseverance and patience and endurance uh, throughout all the toils and troubles of our lives in which we are to live in dependence upon Christ. Well, that's the very heart of the model, which points to our dependence upon Christ as jars of clay. And then the fifth part of Paul's prayer really has to do with the message that we have within the Christian life, the message that we have for the Christian life, which this is the gospel, the gospel that saves us, the gospel that sustains us, the gospel that sanctifies us, the gospel that gives us as believers constant hope. We've also said each week that there's a kind of a focused theme. That is to say that in each of these episodes in Elijah's life and ministry, the main teaching isn't about Elijah per se, it's about God. It's about the primary truth that God does what he does with us, for us, and in us in order to require of our faith that we believe God, that we trust God, that we believe that he's everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. And that as bleak as the situation may seem, as bleak as the situation may be for any of us in whatever our circumstances might be, our faithful service to God is never without its usefulness to his kingdom. And that's why I want our main lesson and main application this morning to be Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, at the end of that long exposition about the resurrection of Jesus, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that's how I want us to come to this passage this morning. That's what I want us to see in this passage this morning. Elijah has proven himself to be a jar of clay. And what does that mean for his future usefulness and service to the kingdom of Christ? Now, within what we've read this morning from verses 1 through 18, I see three particular ideas that we need to comprehend. Actually, three perspectives on understanding. In terms of a, of a certain kind of review, we need to be reminded and to understand the circumstances, the situation, the historical and spiritual situation that has enveloped uh, the life of Elijah at this particular point. Secondly, we need to see uh, Elijah's response to it. We need an understanding of Elijah's point of view. But then thirdly, what is most significant here is to see God's response to this. We need to understand God's point of view. And there's one further thing we need to note in terms of a preliminary and in terms of introduction. We only know this story of Elijah. We only know the stories of Elijah because Elijah himself either wrote this down or he communicated to someone who actually wrote this down. But what we know about the prophets is they had the job uh, often of recording their own histories or having their servants or a fellow prophet record their own histories 
because their own histories were part of what God was doing redemptively in the life of his people, in the life of his nation. So, with all of that as preliminaries, let's begin by, first of all, considering the historical and spiritual significance of the situation that Elijah happened to be in. And this is, like I said, a bit of review. So I want to note five specific events that sets the context that reminds us of what is going on historically and spiritually. First, in terms of background, God demonstrated he was God on Mount Carmel by fire. Then secondly, God demonstrated he was God by water, that is, by the rain, by the ending of the drought. And then thirdly, God demonstrated he was God by Elijah's mode of arriving at the city of Jezreel, that supernatural foot race, that victory race, in which Elijah beats Ahab's chariot to the city of Jezreel. And then fourthly, we come to verse 1 of this chapter. This significant event, Ahab breaking the news to Jezebel. And as he does so, if you look at verse uh, verse 4 here, excuse me, verse 1 here, as you look at it, you see that Ahab's narrative completely leaves God, the true God, and all that God did out of the message. He focuses what he says entirely upon Elijah. He tells what happened as if Elijah had won the spiritual battle with the 450 prophets of Baal. He presents Elijah as the one who killed the 450 prophets, as if all of this was done by some power that Elijah himself personally possessed. Now, in essence, Ahab paganized the message. Even though God had proven himself to be God, Ahab had not been converted. There was no spiritual enlightenment going on within Ahab's heart. And that's why, fifthly, there's no good news. There's no gospel in what he says to Jezebel. There's no call to repentance. There's no call to give up idolatry and the worship of Baal and Asherah. So in Jezebel, likewise, there is no spiritual breakthrough. And she responds by sending Elijah a death threat. And that leads to the sixth event. Elijah immediately runs for his life to the remote south of the southern kingdom. So to summarize, we have the end of God's three-year covenantal curse upon the land of Israel. No rain. And then we have this powerful demonstration of the reality of God from heaven. And then the mercy of rain. After which, there is no change at all. No spiritual renewal in Ahab and Jezebel. They will continue to be a pagan king and queen leading Israel down the path of eternal spiritual destruction. Covenant breakers they are covenant breakers, they remain. Now, all of this has a great impact on Elijah's point of view. Because after all of Elijah's service, ministry, even these miraculous experiences over the past three years, the outcome, no repentance, 
the outcome. No revival. The outcome. There is no change where change is needed the most. And that is with respect to the, the political and spiritual leadership of Israel. From the human perspective, this is a great disappointment. And from the human perspective, this looks like monumental failure. It's not surprising then what we're going to see in Elijah's point of view. It's a kind of natural perspective following the reality of all of this ministry, all of this effort, and hearts remained as hard as stone. So let's move on to Elijah. Let, let's seek to understand Elijah's point of view. And here we see two things in terms of Elijah's response. It's what he did and then what he prayed. Now, in terms of what he did, we see in verse 3, Elijah fled in fear. He arose and he ran for his life. He fled all the way to Beersheba, which is the southernmost part of the southern kingdom, where there in Judah he felt he'd be safe because, well, you've got King Hezekiah of Judah who's reigning. He's, he's a faithful king. He worships God faithfully. So this would be a place of safety. But then he leaves his servant there, verse 4 tells us, to go a day's journey further on into the wilderness where he sits down under a broom tree. Now, let's understand Elijah. Let's get a sense of what is going on. It is a common experience in all of life that when we have done so much, when we have given so much, when we have tried so hard on some particular endeavor with some particular person, whatever it might be, and the outcome shouts or the outcome whispers failure. It is so easy to lose faith. It is easy to feel like you have failed so deeply. And when you feel that way, you lose faith because you think you may have failed God in some significant way. Many of us have had the hard experience of pouring ourselves into something or pouring ourselves into someone, giving it our best, doing it for Christ, and nothing changes. The outcome is disappointing. If you read missionary biographies, you will read about the hard, hard lives of some of the pioneer missionaries who went and spent their entire lives and saw almost nothing in terms of conversions and came back and died without ever seeing any fruit in their labors for the kingdom. Uh, we, we know of Christians, maybe in, in ourselves, where we have witnessed throughout our lives to family and friends and, and the hardness of heart on the people we love remains the same. Many of us have experienced the, the heartbreak of being parents where we have sought to raise godly children and we've given it everything we possibly can and, 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 and we feel like somehow, did we fail? How did, how did we fail? Why, does it, why is it this way? We pour all of our effort into these things that we believe and know are honorable to God and we do not get the outcome or as we said two weeks ago, 
we do not get the story that we wished for. Now, this seems to be Elijah's mental and spiritual condition while he is under the broom tree. And we see this in terms of his prayer. Elijah prays three things. First, he says, it is enough. In other words, he's saying to God, I've done enough. I've, I've suffered enough. I've given all that I can possibly give to the point that I am weary of living. And then that's his second petition. So he prays, now, O Lord, take away my life. In other words, I fled because I don't want to die at Jezebel's hand. But nevertheless, I do wish to die. And, and may it be by your hand, O God. Now, this is not like the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Philippians. Paul was writing from a Roman prison. He was facing possible death in terms of his next tribunal appearance before Caesar. And so he writes this famous statement to the Philippians. He says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. But Paul is not giving up on ministry. He's not giving up on his service, for he continues to say to the Philippians, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That is not Elijah's point of view. He does not think there is any further fruitful labor left for him to do. He feels like he has failed, and if he lives, he will not be of any use to God. His longing to die comes out of the sense of failure, not out of a godly sense to be with Christ. But... This sense of what's going on with Elijah is not something to spark in us any perspective of judgment. Rather, it ought to evoke from us a compassionate perspective. Because many of us, maybe most of us, at one time or another, have been at this point in our lives where we have felt so deeply defeated and discouraged. As we mentioned earlier, the, the, the hard experience of, of pouring ourselves into something, of giving something our very, very best, of doing it for Christ, and then nothing changes. The outcome is heartbreaking. The outcome is disappointing. And our disappointment may be so great that we honestly think we have nothing left to live for. And that leads then to the third part of Elijah's prayer, where he says, for I am no better than my fathers. In other words, God, they failed you, and so have I. My Christian testimony, my life of service is over. God, I don't think I can ever be useful to you again. Now, that's Elijah's point of view. If you have ever been there, if you have ever felt this sense of, a failure, when you really wanted to see success, when you really had deep hopes for a different outcome, then, then look at Elijah. See one of the, the greatest of God's prophets 
and, and see that he has been in this dark and depressing place. And then remember, like Elijah, our point of view and God's point of view are not the same. We need to remember God's point of view, which Paul has given to us in Philippians 1.6. He says to the Philippian believers, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That brings us then to God's point of view. And this passage opens up for us God's point of view, to understand God's point of view. And it's all about grace and the gracious treatment of Elijah. This part of the story, in terms of God's point of view, involves four successive acts of grace of God toward Elijah. The first act of grace is how God treats Elijah, who is seemingly running away from his duty, who seems to have lost any sense of being useful to God. We see this in verses 5 and 6. We see how it presents God's treatment of Elijah. We know that Elijah, under the broom tree, lies down and he falls asleep. And then an angel comes, sent by God, wakes him up, tells him to arise and eat, and Elijah sees a baked cake there on hot stones and a jar of water. He eats he drinks. He lies back down and apparently falls asleep again. And then verse 7, once again the angel of the Lord comes. He awakens Elijah. He feeds him. And then he tells him that he needs to eat this food because the journey is too great for you. Now, think about this feeding. The, the theme of feeding is, is, is prominent in, in Elijah's story. Because the first feeding was with the ravens, the second with the widow, and now with an angel. While Elijah was doing his mission in faith and obedience, he was miraculously fed. He was fed, first of all, by what the Israelites understood to be an unclean bird, the ravens. And then he's fed by an unclean person, uh, a, a Gentile, a Sidonian, a pagan, He's fed by, with the miracle of the unending flour and oil. But now, in this very state of failure, God sends a holy angel to take care of him, to bring him water, and to cook his bread. And we might note, because it's very suggestive, it speaks of this angel as the angel of the Lord a phrase in the Old Testament that almost uniformly refers to a Christophany, that Christ himself comes as the angel of the Lord. But the point is, is that the grace and care and love of God is even more greatly manifested to Elijah when his faith has burned so low than when his faith was burning so bright. And this is the nature of God's grace to us and for us and in us. Where sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. Now, this feeding, though, 
is more than God meeting Elijah for his daily bread. Because God is preparing Elijah for this, the second act of grace that will only take place after the journey that Elijah is going to take. And the second act of grace is the trip to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, Mount Sinai. In actual distance, it does not take 40 days to walk the 200 miles from Beersheba to Mount Sinai. So the 40 days is in some sense parallel to the 40 years of wandering that Israel did in this same wilderness. Perhaps this is what's going on. Elijah, if you say you are no better than your fathers who had to wander 40 years in the wilderness, then you shall wander 40 days. But your fathers all perished in the wilderness. Only their children came into the promised land. You, on the other hand, are not going to perish. But I will bring you to Mount Horeb. I will bring you to my mount. And Elijah, no one needs to tell you. You are the only other person in all of history that I have called to my holy mountain besides Moses. This is where your journey lies. This is your journey's destination. You shall come to my holy mountain and you will stand where my servant Moses stood. Now that's a tremendous act of grace on the part of God toward Elijah. The third act of grace is God reveals himself to his prophet. Now, look at how this plays out. Remember that on this mountain, Moses went up a second time to receive the Ten Commandments carved in stone. But on the second trip up the mountain, Moses came with this deepest prayer, this deepest desire. Uh, he said to God, if I have found favor in your sight, God, show me your glory. Now, we cannot imagine a, a greater and deeper desire in the redeemed heart than to behold the glory of God. But God has to say to Moses, no one can see my glory and live. Exodus 33, 20. So God places Moses in the cleft of the rock, covers him there with his hand, and God passes by so that Moses is shielded from the direct manifestation of the glory of God, and which Moses could not have endured and lived. And Moses sees only, as it were, the backside or the after effects of God's glory. And yet that itself is so radiant that it irradiates Moses' own countenance with this holy brightness so that when Moses comes down from the mountain, he has to veil that brightness, that radiance, whenever he's in the presence of the people of Israel. Now, in that context, God puts this question to Elijah, verse 9. What are you doing here, Elijah? And perhaps the unspoken subtext is this. Are you here, like Moses, to seek my glory? Are you here because you want a deeper manifestation of who I am?
Are you here because you are hungering and thirsting for more of who I am? But Elijah answers this way, verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now this answer of Elijah, to a very large extent, Moses had similar complaints against the people of Israel because they had forsaken God. They had broken the covenant. They had made a false God. They were threatening toward Aaron and Moses. But the great difference is this. Moses had, above and beyond all of that, one supreme desire, and that was to behold the glory of God, to see God's glory was not Elijah's answer. His answer was of a very different nature. Essentially, it was a defense of his ministry, and it was a complaint about the danger that he was now in. He says, I have served you, Lord God, and my life is in danger, and my service has been in vain. Now, remember, Elijah is the source of all of this information about Elijah. And Elijah is not painting a very noble, a very God-glorifying perspective when he says all of this. He's telling us exactly where he was in terms of his own point of view. Yet, God's intention remains that God is going to reveal more of himself to Elijah, though not as he did with Moses. He doesn't hide Elijah in the cleft of the rock, and he doesn't come out and have his glory pass by, but he does have Elijah come out to stand before the Lord, and what happens is a strong wind blows that tears rocks into pieces. And then an earthquake happens that shakes the mountain, and then a fire comes by. Now, here is what we are told in terms of what Elijah was supposed to see. First, that God was not in the wind, that God was not in the earthquake, that God was not in the fire, which is to say God is not to be identified with the forces of nature. They are under his command, but God is not them. The forces of nature are not God. But after the fire, the fourth manifestation is the sound of a low whisper. And in that whisper came the voice of God. Now, what is God saying to Elijah about himself? What is he revealing? Basically, it is this. It does not matter how often God gives signs and wonders of his existence. How often he might act in and through nature to show that he is God. Signs and wonders do not change the fallen heart. There is only one way that God changes the spiritual direction of the hearts of fallen human beings. It is by his voice coming in a soft whisper that only those who have ears to hear 
can actually hear. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow. And I give them eternal life. And then there's the fourth and climactic act of grace. Elijah is recommissioned. Even after God in his soft voice asks Elijah again, what are you doing here? Elijah answers exactly the same way. Even though Elijah has not fully gotten the full understanding of what God is doing, God's response is full of grace. In verse 15, Elijah is recommissioned with the work that is going to finish his career, work that is actually going to lead to the point where God takes Elijah from earth to heaven in the chariot of fire. No one ever exited this world in this glorious kind of way until we might say the resurrection and ascension of Lord Jesus to heaven. Now, that commission itself, we're going to leave untouched for another message. But what we need to notice is this. The last words here that God declares to Elijah is this, verse 18, that he is going to leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees and all the mouths that have not bowed and kissed Baal. He's telling the prophet that your toil in the Lord has not been and it will not be in vain. Now that's the lesson of this passage. Jars of clay. We will have situations where we will have given everything we possibly could give to something and we don't see the story or the outcome that we have so deeply desired. And yet, from the New Testament perspective, from who we are to be as Christians, the exhortation is this, perseverance, endurance, and the hope and the certain knowledge that God will crown what we do, no matter how little we see, with fruit that we know not of. And that's why, no matter what the situation is like, we are to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. We are to know that our faithful service to the Lord is not without its usefulness to his kingdom. And even when we think we have failed, even when we think we are useless to God, we need to see that God's way with us is the way of grace, the way of mercy, the way of restoration, the way of recommission. We are jars of clay. Yet his word to us is this. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Father, help us. Help us to believe that as jars of clay, so we are, so that this all-surpassing power of all that you might do through us, causing us to bear fruit, would not be from us, but be from you and your work in and through us, so that in our lives, Christ and Christ alone 
would be glorified. And this we pray. Encourage us, Lord, with this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.